This episode of Commentary, Trek Stars, is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad, and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Hi, this is Robert Duncan McNeil, also known as Tom Paris from Star Trek Voyager. You're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to Season 4, Episode 4 of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. Today is Part 4 in our series on Larry Nemechek as a, a, a book writer, I guess you could say, author, Does that work? A bookmaker. Yeah. A bookie. <laughs> and we are going to be recapping uh, Larry's career, and to, to do that with us, we're joined by Larry himself. How's it going, Larry? Hey, bud. Come here. Who you got in the fourth? I'm sorry, when you said a bookie, I went, <laughs> I went back to uh, <laughs> Sheldon Leonard's old character on on uh, Jack Benny, which, you know, anyway. Um, <laughs> we were just talking about Antony. Thank you. This is, I was going to say, this was, uh, I know you called me about doing this, but it didn't really sink in until I started watching, you know, as a citizen of 2014, I'm watching all the Twitter feeds and things go by, and I see these people talking mm-hmm. about my stuff, and I'm not on the show, and and it's it, that's okay. I don't mean that I should have been there. I just mean it's just weird to have people talking about you in a good way, <laughs> and you're not there. It's just like, oh, okay, so this is interesting. Anyway, so it's so I listened to them, and it was like, um, everybody was really wonderful. But it's just there's just something other world. It's like you know having an out of body experience, I guess, or something. It's it's a little otherworldly to have um, people talking about oh. your work that way. I mean, and I've, I mean, I've read book reviews. There's just something about hearing actual humans sitting down <laughs> to do something besides somebody just wrote something, you know, because anybody in the yeah. dog can sit down and write something about you, and they usually do. And <laughs> and anyway, it was, but it was all very good. I'm I'm very flattered and complimented that you guys have chosen to do a creator series about me. When you're just, oh, it you know, only seemed fitting. When we're but only, you know, you're only knocking off Nick Meyer and Cliff Bowl and, you know, and it, all these people off your list. And uh, so anyway, I'm very flattered and humbled and gratified and still a little weirded out. But that's all for the good, the good. So <laughs> yeah, well, see, see now you know what it feels like because I mean that's what you do to all the Star Trek people, right? So now, yeah, fair play. <laughs> oh, okay, karma <laughs> coming home to roost, baby. Okay, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But no, I mean, we we even said in in our in our Nick Meyer series that uh, Nick Meyer is the Larry Nemechek of of love story. So so there you go. It <laughs> only you... makes sense that we cover the 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 Larry Nemechek of Star Trek That's as well. That's funny. Right? That's right. I'd forgotten that. Yeah. There you go. I was so, very proud of that comment. It was good. I was good very comment. proud of that. Yeah. <laughs> it was very accurate, Larry actually. <laughs> kind of like retro. Usually, when I go forward in time, not backward in time. But, but uh, context is everything. So yeah. Yes. Yes. Anyway, I'm very, I'm very flattered that you guys are doing this, and and um, I was just kidding online too. I was, I, I knew we were having a last word here, so I wasn't accusing anybody <laughs> of exclusion. Or... No, no, no. We, we know we we didn't want to monopolize your time for like a whole month. We figured we could just get you here that that one time, and it would be all good. 
Also, so, we don't want to make it like like seem like we're not being honest. Yeah. Like if you're here, like people would expect us to be nice. Right. But when you're not here, you'd expect us to be honest. And we didn't want people to think that we weren't being no honest. No holes barred. Yep. Yep. So obviously the episode of Star Trek that you did was prophecy and we've talked about that a lot both with and without you. Yeah. Um so one of these just, days if I can do this, one of these days I'm going to try to get my wife on on somebody's podcast somewhere. We used to do a panel at cons about the process of doing that, but her it's not that her memory is different than mine, but she she was into all the different stories and variations we had. But she'll just I, I just like to have her to round the picture out because I know as much as I remember and I was there, obviously when we developed the story, Janet was like the story generator person and then I and then I was like the first bounce and then we would bounce back and forth and and she had very definite opinions about the process about a story and then like <laughs> what happened the first time or two we bounced it so just someday down the line not to belabor this I want to I want to that's a tall order though she doesn't really like to to go out online and, and do the shows and everything now because she's moved on with her life but um <laughs> If I get her drunk, well, I, no, you, I'm kidding. Uh, I, if you, if you can ever convince her, just let us. Yeah, know. Yeah, sometime uh, I would like to do that, and uh, whatever. So, anyway, uh, yeah, I mean that would be great, especially since you know from what you've been saying and everything, it sounds like she's uh, had some very interesting opinions about Voyager, which are shared by some people in this room. Yeah, well, so and she has the, the opinion of you know it's like um, when you work some you know she has the opinion. I have this opinion about a modern Trek about late. Well, not even late next generation. From from Voyager on mid DS nine and late and Voyager onward, I have the I have the viewpoint of having worked there or had a front row seat to it, rather than be a total fan like original series and early next gen. And yeah. that's her perspective. She was like in the Catbird. She has a working person's perspective of what it was like as a job, you know. And yeah. sometimes that's really hard to separate from. I think that's what she when she got burned out was. Um, as much as she enjoyed it, and there was a lot of uh, a lot of perks and a lot of things, it was a grind, and, and Voyager was grindier than DS9 was, and uh, hmm. so she was there five years. But um, she, it's almost inseparable. It's, it took a while for her to get over her, uh, and I didn't mean to start talking about Janet so much, but it took a while for her to get over her burnout on Star Trek in general, and get back to where yeah. she'd even watch an original series, you know. I grew up with as a kid, stayed up late and disobeyed mom to listen to them late at night because Oklahoma City showed them at 10.30 on Sunday. Uh, <laughs> original series run, but, you know, and she beat me there. But um, to get back to where she could kind of in, sit back and enjoy watching an original series show again, you know, or a next gen or something. Sure, yeah. But that's, that's a perspective. When, it's, when you think about Star Trek as the place you work and then you, like, graft that onto how you feel about the place you work and go... Oh, that's kind of icky. <laughs> you yeah. Know? No, I, I definitely know the feeling. I mean, I think that's probably true of any job, you know. Yeah. But well, well, what? Just for the record, um, what do you think about the finished product of Prophecy? Oh, um, I actually think it's one of the the better, the better Pro- Voyager shows, and one of the better shows of that season. And it was kind of imaginative. And, uh, I mean, I, like I said, I still like our story originally, but our story was of a first season, second season show. That was a, hey, look, Bolana's married and pregnant, so it had to be there. But um, I think, and by the time it got to the seventh season, it was a moot point. But our story was going, if depending on what their mood was, 
if they wanted to set up the fact that they had been dropping off colonies of Klingons all the way out from the Alpha to this point when they find them, that would have been something as the seasons went by, they could have run into you know, one or two different situations of, of you know, Klingon colonies that had been dropped off 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 80 years before and seen what the evolution or what the dynamic was going on around them at that time. Um, maybe they had been Borgified. Maybe they had taken over, a, you know, whatever. So by the time they got to seventh season, that was lost. So that would have been something wacky cool if they wanted to have one Alpha Quadrant crutch, you know, have one way to, to throw that in. But, you know, this is the show that came in with the, with the Caretaker's Companion in the second season. So it's kind of... For everybody that complains mm-hmm. about Voyager, about Enterprise running into photon torpedoes in the late first season already, you know, like ahead of time, maybe, <laughs> I'm like, well, you know, Voyager, they found the Nassim Companion in second season. So um, they didn't save that one for later in the run. Um, no, I love it. And I think one of the best Neelix scenes of all time is in Prophecy, which, you know, had nothing to do with us. The Klingon, you know, the Klingoness, as Worf called that first time you saw a Klingon woman in Next Gen. Uh, that was a hysterical scene, and it was. And I thought it fit the whole Bellana Paris arc fairly well. Yeah. It was kind of an interesting thing, and a way to find more nuances of Bellana hating her other half or coming to peace with it. You know. Yeah. I didn't think much about it, but I never really liked Neelix, but he is very good in prophecy. Yeah, yeah. that's really. It was really a Neelix show that uh, a show where it works, and it's funny. Yeah. Yeah, and Charlene was saying the same thing. Yeah, and 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 Tuvok. It's not exactly Tuvok, you know, finding the necktie on the doorknob kind of thing, but I, it's it's kind of <laughs> pretty close. <laughs> it's kind of fu- yeah. That was, that was funny. <laughs> so I'm proud to have my name on it. If that's what you mean. And I'm very pleased. I mean, they could have very easily, you know, we got paid for it, so they could have easily six years later not had our name in the credits and had let us get our little fifteen dollar check every three months. But um, but we do. So that was very kind of Ken to do that. I'll always. Thank Ken Biller for doing that. Uh, before, when we talked about this, you you know kind of offhandedly mentioned that when you went in to pitch for for this uh, particular uh, series, there were a number of pitches that you guys made, and this was just sort of the one that you threw in there because it seemed like an obvious thing or, yeah. or something. This was the know. token stupid dumb pitch. Yeah, right. <laughs> Were there any pitches that you had made at that time that you remember where you were like, oh, man, that was a real good one? We, or- yeah, this was – okay, it was – number one, it was so funny because our good friend Lolita Faja, who was the script coordinator, Janet's boss, we pitched – we practiced pitch to her. Because here, here for years I'd been hearing about the guys the right, when I was working on the book, the companion book for Next Gen. I was new to Hollywood and writing and all these aspects of hands-on entertainment making. <laughs> so to hear by talking about the pitch and the writer's break – sessions and all this stuff was new but I very quickly assimilated it and I would talk to the guys talking about taking pitches talking about when they made their first pitches or made their spec script or I would talk to some of the freelance writers talking about going into pitch so I intellectually knew but it's never it's like intellectually knowing how to ride a bike or drive a car you know it's (laughs) never until you get in there and you watch all your muscles either coagulating or getting in line and lining up or whatever the right way and so we would, and, and you know, people say, well, you never sell anything on your first pitch session and all that. And so we had like four, we did everything by the book. We had like three or four stories and went in, and this was like, you know, somewhere on the way. Uh, and the ones that we, and we took a couple of weekend, we did a couple of little weekend retreats and went up to a cabin, and Janet and I worked on our stories really hard. And, um, 
and went in, and we knew what you're supposed to do, how you kind of unreal it a little bit, and you don't sit there and go, and blah, 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 blah. You know, and it's, it, what's the theme of it not, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, and, you know, and not have it be fanboy wanking and all this kind of stuff. And Janet was very clear about that, too. Janet's a good script doctor story person still. So the one that I, and I, and then what's cool is uh, a few months ago, I wish I'd known you were going to ask me this. A couple months ago when I was going through all this stuff after our move, I found our file of all our original notes and stuff on our pitches. So, oh, you know, wow. the lost Ooh. pitches of Janet and Larry. <laughs> but the one that I remember off the top of my head was the one that I enjoyed, which was kind of prescient, which was, and I didn't even think about Wagon Train at the Stars until later, but basically it's here's Voyager trying to go home, and I had this image of a wagon train across the country, and these different ships had come together that were whether they were Nassim caretaker-driven or whether they just came upon them, but it's like through a really bad spot in the Delta Quadrant where there were different raiders. Uh, several unaffiliated ships had just banded together to, you know, safety in numbers. So it was kind of like a wagon train motif, and Voyager gets into this wagon train safety in numbers, and then it's and then it's uh, coming up with some things going on. And then you got in your wide open to have personalities within that group. But I had some very specific story points, you know, and Voyager decided they couldn't um, they couldn't hang with these people. There were some troublemakers or whatever, and it just wasn't going to, you know. And then maybe after they left the group, they got wiped out, or maybe they found some scragglers later and told them something. But, you know, but that's the motif. And um, two or three other things. I think we had one where they were kidnapped. Uh, people were being kidnapped and, and one by one. Kind of a thing. Anyway, some, some, we were trying to go Twilight Zony with it because originally Voyager was going to be the weird shit show, you know. Really? Yeah. yeah. Uh, aside from the Maquis, well, when you took away the Maquis Starfleet friction right off the bat, thank you, UPN. It's Star Trek. It has to be noble, and they all get along. Uh, so that's what it was. It was UPN's fault. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to stop yeah. there. That's and interesting. Deep dive on that comment. The three of them yeah, didn't. The three that. of them, Michael and Rick and and Jerry didn't all sit down and create a pilot that everybody went, oh, my God, this feels like a second, uh, second season show. The characters get along. You know, they meld so well. And we, I, we came out of the screening of the lot, and I was just going, wow, that is the most incredible Star Trek pilot I've ever seen, aside from the whole no water on the planet thing. And then, um, and then instantly Janet would come home and go, they're watering this down. They're watering this down. They're watering this <laughs> down. It's like the Maquis are all just sheep now. They've all just instantly assimilated. You know, they let Bellana punch one guy, and then after that, overall <laughs> hunky-dory fine now. And it's like, oh, okay. You know, and oh, okay, now. Now Neelix and Paris aren't fighting over Kess. Okay, that's gone. Okay, Paris and Chakotay aren't fighting. Okay, that's gone. I'm like... Okay, well, what's left of the show? Well, they're going to planets. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, well, okay. But even then, and you know, they would they would have the like the afterlife show. Uh, um, what's the afterlife show where they find out they're being, you know, it was a it was a religious. Um, beyond the no, had the, it was another one of Brandon's weird word title it's not shows. That the Venori were the people in it. I can remember that. Uh, in not infatuations. Anyway, I've gone blank on it, but. Um, you know, they would still have those, but it, it just went so vanilla so fast that it was not the weird shit show that they were hoping it would. Because at the time, they're trying to find out how it stands apart from, you know, Next Gen was the was the predecessor, was the, uh, look, we can do Star Trek again and modernize it and go forward with it. Okay, cool. And then DS9 was the, okay, look, so Next Gen was the happy ship, well lit, where everybody got along, 
and it's all Federation, Federation all the time. And here we'll have a crossroads. We'll have Casablanca in space, and we can have drama and imperfect characters because they're not all, you know, Federation. And um, and so Voyager had to find its own niche. And just being lost, going home wasn't, you know, that was the locale. But they needed more than that. And one of the things was going to be that okay, we're going to do really since we're in the Delta. For some reason, the physics and the Delta. <laughs> it was kind of like the same idea of the Zindi Expanse and Enterprise. It's like, only not quite so overt. But it's like, okay, we're out here where we don't know what's going on, so we're going to have weird stuff and weird people, you know. And anyway, so uh, yeah, yeah, so that so seemed to break yeah. back off yeah. a lot of that. Anyway, I didn't mean to get off talking about Voyager so much, but uh, no, no, I mean that, that that's actually, I mean it seems perfectly. Uh, logical thinking about it now but that that the network would have been the ones who had because i mean yeah it's like all those people involved with the creation of the show they all have like an extremely solid track record i mean you know jerry taylor you know ran what i think is the best season of next gen and pillar obviously did all that awesome stuff so yeah i mean that totally makes sense now it was the student it was the network that okay wow I don't know why I'd never thought of that. That just blew my mind. It is. It is. We we've definitely (laughs) run that simulation in our heads for a very long time. (laughs) And there it is. And and the idea of it being the 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 weird shit show, as you say. I mean, I guess that kind of because that was one thing that I always thought was really weird about it was it's like, why is Joe Minoski on this show? He seems like he'd be much more suited to Deep Space Nine, but. I guess if they were trying to be crazy. Well, and Brandon too. Brandon was the weird shit. Brandon, that was his, I guess that was his. Yeah, I when guess he th- is. When Brandon was an intern and started writing, he wrote a couple of shows with. When, when he got to start being on his own, Brandon did Time and Again. Brandon mm-hmm. did. Uh, I want to say I think Timescape. I mean, he was doing the weird that when the next the later next gen shows that are really kind of high concept out there. I mean, that's what that's Jerry's term. Jerry's term was brands doing our weird shit shows, and we, we love it for that. Before all the thing of being saddled with the, you know, you and Rick ruined Star Trek and all that kind of crap that came up later, mm-hmm. uh, Brandon's thing out of the gate was he's the young, crazy guy that his his student film at UC Santa Barbara was, well, I can't tell you on, on even a podcast radio what it was about. But anyway, Brandon was pretty <laughs> out there and was really trying to bring this, uh, you know, Star Trek has gotten too staid and set and pretty lit and all that stuff. He was trying to shake it up with his shows and really stretch the stretch the envelope. And so that's that's what they were really going to roll up their sleeves and do on Voyager. That was kind of going to be his major niche on Voyager when he when he went in. And and Jerry and Michael were glad to have it. You know, it's interesting. Here's my Young first, Buck. Here's Young Buck, two years out of college, going to you know. Yeah, I first thought of Brian Braga. My first like picture of him as a writer was he's the guy who writes dream sequences. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know why, and, that was the first thing that I thought of. Yeah, and schisms on next gen. Yeah. I think. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Schism- yeah. I mean that 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 is really interesting. I mean, these are all just things which are just so logical that I had never. So I'm I'm, considered, I'm thrilled I mean, that, to give you like 19 little jump off ideas for new shows here. So that's yeah. I mean, work oh my god, done. I I want I want to see that short film so badly now. I had never heard of it before. That sounds amazing. Well, there's probably good reason, but it's okay. It, it was a student film, you know. But anyway, it does. I, I and I've seen my share of student films, believe me. But if how it's, many if it's doll heads crazy, are in the sink <laughs> in this student film? Because that is a requirement of student films. I don't. Yeah, right. I don't. The first time I interviewed Brandon, it was like the the crazed, cramped, uh, 
do this in six months for the first edition of of next gen and of the companion and uh the week <laughs> the week I was out they were all trying to get out of their hiatus into their hiatus and it was like uh I don't care that there's a a writer here from an official book we're trying to do a show I mean I didn't talk to anybody I talked to everybody on the phone when they all hit their break back home in Oklahoma at our newsroom uh and I was taking I was in news mode then still and I was like handwriting everything on the phone like we would do it in the th- I didn't have a recorder or a phone recorder or anything like that so all my my very first interview and I have pretty good notes but my first interviews with Mike Jerry Rick and and Brannon was the only other writer that called me um at the time um was all you know there's not a recording of it so in the when I went in sixth season was the I guess we're we're dovetaving over to companion here a little bit yeah I was gonna say but um sixth season was the first time I sat down and had my like two-hour interviews with everybody where they talked about their background and and everything so um so I missed getting the voice of Brandon when he was like oh I just was an intern and now I got to I got to do my first (laughs) 13-week contract and I stuck and you know, yeah. I thought you were going to do a Brandon Braga voice. <laughs> it's uh, it's really hard to do a Brandon Braga voice. <laughs> that's, that's pretty good. It's right got to be, uh, <laughs> you know, it's got to be kind of quiet. And uh, I don't know, Larry. So fuck you too. Uh, yeah, okay. But you know, that's, I'm just kidding because I love you, Larry. <laughs> no, I, I don't know. Intelligent, that, but maybe high. That, that Brandon is, Braga. That is pretty spot on, right there. <laughs> that's 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 very good. You are very good at these impressions. I, yeah. Um, okay, so so now getting into the companion, then, am I right in thinking that this started because you were doing something like this for what was it, your newspaper in Oklahoma, like prior to the? I mean, isn't that how? No, it's I no. I got the I got the I, the the companion came along because okay, so I'd always been a background fan, and I loved you know the seminal things in my life as far as Trek writing was um, uh, Steve Steve. Whitfield or Stephen Poe, his real last name. Whitfield was Stephen Poe's the classic book, The Making of Star Trek, which was what everybody had. It went through forty billion you know, it was printed at the end of the second season and he was on site with Gene and the show writing and um, they never updated Does it, it lead into season. a book about Assignment Earth? Does it does it have a spin off book? <laughs> It's just just one chapter about yeah. that cancelled show. Yeah, Robert Lansing wrote a chapter in it and then they never picked it up. Um uh, but Terry Garr's chapter, uh, Gene came in and ripped an inch off the bottom of it. And uh, okay, I'm, I'm being too bizarre here. You know the story about Gene came in. Terry Garr had her miniskirt on, and Bill Tice is standing there for the producer look. And Gene goes, "Now how about we make it like this?" And he goes up to her actual dress, and like rips it up like another inch and inch or so, and then rips an inch all the way around her hem and makes it shorter, which you know, Bill Tice is like going, I have to hem this, you know. Anyway, uh, boy, that was bizarre. But anyway, uh, so, so, but the making of Star Trek, when you were, a, you know, in the 70s, there weren't, you didn't, we didn't have anything, and that was like the book for years and years and years, and it was a paperback, a mass market paperback. But, I mean, the tech manual and the blueprints, and B. Joe's Concordance came out, and mm. I didn't have the fan. Yeah. Ver- I've since got the fan version. I tried to. Oh, I tried to order her second, her two years and the third season supplement, and they had just quit printing them. And they sent me a letter, a form letter, and said, "Hey, we've just sold this to Valentine. Do you want us to send you a fan one, or do you want the really cool professional version?" I was like, "Well, yeah, okay, I'll get the really. You know, so send me back my eight dollars or whatever, and I'll just buy the pro one with the wheel on the front." 
the tricorder wheel on the front. So I did, but I got it, and I just remembered, you know, you devoured it, A, because it had all the seasons in it, and it had that concordance. The encyclopedia part was like, oh, my God, you know, and it all referred to episodes. So it was the precursor of Mike and Denise's encyclopedia was B. Joe's concordance for the original series. And it had the animateds in it, too, so it had everything. And that was the first wave. The second wave was, oh, I, I'm sorry. I need to know what that guy's rank was, and I need to know like what <laughs> duty division he was in. So I would like start making my own notes, you know, because then I would watch a show go. And then there were things I wanted to know, and I would, I would, um, and we're guys, we're talking about the days when the way you experienced Star Trek was to wait for your local station to show an episode every day, right? So uh, and you there? very I quickly guess. got into the idea of oh, there's 79 shows, five days a week. That's like about every three months it would recycle, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, yeah. oh, I've got a, I'm, I was sick this day or I, was, I had to travel or I missed this or whatever your thing was and you missed it at 4 o'clock after school or whatever. This is my music lesson, my piano lesson day or whatever the hell it was going on. And you're like, okay, well, I'll watch it again in three months because <laughs> you know, okay, oh, they're in second season. Okay, I'm, I'm waiting for Doomsday Machine to come back around, you know, kind of a thing. And – at some point, I started keeping – I'd get like a sheet of paper, and I would have to tie – after I had the concordance, I would get them all and with their number, and it was like, okay, my visual stuff. I need to know his his division. And, oh, they would say Lieutenant Commander uh, Giotto from um, Devil in the Dark, but he really had lieutenant stripes on. It was a mistake. you know. <laughs> They'd call him Lieutenant Commander, so I would like write that in. He really has lieutenant stripes and – you know, or he's a, he's in support services before we said ops. The the tech manuals thing was support services. So I would like write SS or C or S for science command or whatever. But just other stuff like the planet. Oh, is that a, is that the red planet? Like the Vulcan knockoff, or is that the Alpha M one thirteen knockoff planet? You know, or whatever. There were three planet types, and they would keep putting a new different color filter on them. You know what I'm saying, right? So mm-hmm. I'll leave you in the okay. dirt. I mean, the original series, depending on which effects house was doing that effects, they they were like three planet types and the one that's Vulcan in the credits and they would like put a purple filter on it or a green filter and it would be something different the thing that now with the blu-ray remasters they've gone in and given everybody really individualized planets but in the you know watching the old shows but anyway all that kind of stuff I would jot down and then the third wave was oh my god look at all these stars and these stars and planets are all in here they're just like they're just like scattered I didn't you don't stop and think about them until you see them in a list here and mm-hmm. I knew that obviously Alpha Centauri was a real one, and probably, um, you know, Sigma Iosha sounds real. Is it really? And then things like, oh, I don't know, you know, um, Romulus probably isn't a real star. So I started like would make a list of the real stuff. And, and I was a space nut, and I was a NASA kid already. I was a big Apollo space nerd already before we need to call it that. So I would make lists. And the tech manual drove me crazy because they have all those missing pages. Well, it's all it was implying that there was a full book, and you were getting the pieces that were leaked from the events of yesterday's inter- of uh, yesterday's enterprise of tomorrow's yesterday. So I was <laughs> like making a list of all the pages okay. that I wanted, and I was like doing my own pages for the tech manual that weren't there. Like, well, what does a deflector shield look like, and what does a phaser bank look like? And and the other thing was organized. And then the tech manual had a star chart in it, so I was like. Okay, here, and they had some things grounded. So here's the orientation. It was based on the real Milky Way. And then, okay, well, what are the real – well, Rigel's a real star. Capella is a real star. You know, the real stars they would use in Star Trek. Okay, we can orient those. 
Now, when they go from known star to fake star, um, it has to be within a certain... It can't be halfway across the galaxy. It's got to be kind of in that... If the Enterprise is really patrolling a sector or something, even though that gets blown out of the water a couple times. So, mm-hmm. you know... But anyway, so I would like... chart. So I started working on my own star charts based on the tech manuals formal because back in those days it's like well if it's a national print it must be the real thing you know and and you would gradually hear about somebody you'd read some article in a zine that would had some tech articles in it besides from fan fiction or it would be a oh my god it would be an all tech trek zine you know and you would read that and go and you'd write a letter to that guy and after a while there'd be like four or five of you around the country writing snail mail or writing letters, as we used to say, because there wasn't anything else to do it. And long-distance phone calls, oh, my God, you couldn't blow $20 on an hour-long phone call to somebody because, A, you would talk longer than an hour if it was two Trek nerds discovering each other across the country. And, B, <laughs> you know, and, oh, it's a $50 phone bell, and your dad would yell at you or scream at you or something. So I'm sorry. I'm drifting off here, but that's that's where life was when I came to Star Trek. And and Interstat was – I found Interstat. So, oh, my God. And then it's like, well, it's all these women – Three-fourths of it's women talking about characters and one or two guys. And I would, like, write one background letter, and maybe in the next issue one or two people would answer me. And it was a, Interstat was what we called a letter of comment zine, a loc zine. And it's basically bulletin boards yeah. and, you know, everybody now messaging back and forth. But that was like you got it, like, about 30 pages, typeset, I mean, uh, typed out, like IBM Selectric Courier, <laughs> shrunk down to, like, a digest-size half-sheet. And Terry Meyer in Kansas City did it for like 15 years. And once a month, you would get this thing with about 30 or 40 letters, and it's all people like addressing each other back and forth. And sometimes you'd have <laughs> early day flame wars going back and back and oh, forth. That sounds lovely. And, um, and I've got, I didn't, I missed the first three or four years, but I have it from like, you know, the last 15 years of it. And then there would be columns, and Dixie, um, not Dixie Carter. Dixie uh, wrote Dixie's clippings, and she would take things out of the trade papers. So if there was real news about Star Trek, she would have a little thing, and it was in like variety speak, you know, like uh, picks, nicks, big bicks, so and so ankle at para, you know, and you'd get used to reading the trades. But they would have that column, that and there was a humor <laughs> column, and it was amazing. Anyway, that's I'm sorry, prehistoric <laughs> fandom, guys. I got off on a tangent there, but that's the way it was. And you'd find five or six guys around the country writing it. So I. I got the point where I had worked on my my star charts, did them, made a poster with hand rub like you know 150 stars and and items and ter- text hand rubbed with Letraset letters, okay, on a big wall chart, and then I got introduced to Jeff Mandel and his zine and uh, us writing letters back and forth from Oklahoma to New York City because you couldn't talk on the phone that would cost a mint, and. Um, and we, he got me into working my stuff for his tech zine that was published. His name got taken out by all the dealers that kept reprinting it and selling it. But his Starfleet <laughs> Command Officer's Manual. And then he got called in when Mike McMaster got killed. Mike McMaster, who did the Bridge Blueprints and the um, Romulan Bird of Prey and the Klingon D7 Blueprints, uh, got called in when uh, the guy that owned um, New Eye Studio, Jeff Maynard in New York, got a contract uh, to do uh, a Star Trek maps because the early books like B. Joe's Concordance was fan published. Ballantine bought it and they made a pro version. Uh, the medical reference was uh, was Doug Drexler and Jeff Mandel and all the New York Trek Mafia guys had done a fan version, very slick. And Ballantine bought it. It was camera ready. Bang! They put a different. They put a blue cover instead of a white cover on it and they sold it professionally from Ballantine. 
and the tech manual was was done to order. But but uh, Franz Joseph had done his Enterprise blueprints as a, you know, they sold them at a San Diego convention and they sold out his 50 copies in two seconds because people went crazy over it. And and he got a pro contract. Yeah. So all these uh, – Ballantine was like buying ready-made things. So back in the day, we were going to make a ready-made thing, and they would buy. And uh, uh, Jeff Maynard did. And then and then Mike McMaster died in a car wreck. Jeff Maynard turned to Jeff and said, would you finish out this sis- set? And it made a lot more sense than the star charts format grid scale in the tech manual. And Jeff had to write me a letter and say, I'm really sorry, letter. It's a whole new ball game." I'm really sorry, Larry. It's a whole new ball game. I'm working on this thing. It's going to be professionally printed. The scales are all off. All the distances and the relationships that we worked on are all done. But your sidebars are great. I'll use that. Your federation members and all this stuff are really great. So I'm sorry. I've I've gotten off on a tangent here. But that's – and I got really bummed and burned, and then I never got any copies because Jeff got screwed on the deal and never got any copies because that was the last thing done by a, as a non-pocket license project. So they made like one printing – and never made any more, and people loved it, and it like the value went up to like sixty, eighty, a hundred bucks if you could find one at a con back in the day, and um, and then Pocket started the license, and um, that's Jeff and my first go around until Jeff came back around and did the book in two thousand two, and we all I met him face to face in ninety four at the art department for generations, and it was just like this is amazing. We we wrote letters back and forth like fourteen years before, and. And now we're standing here together in Hollywood, coming from our different places. It was kind of it was kind of a surreal moment, but oh my god, that's awesome! At, that is just so you know, that's not a tangent. That's a segue. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, but and that's so there's set up. We do have for to ask about stellar cartography. Yeah, now. so there's but, there's but, the <laughs> cartography. So all these things are like lurking around back there, and it's just it's just kind of weird now. I mean, I, I'm sorry, I've totally blown your structure for the show. I know, but no, 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 no. That's okay. That's okay. So. Okay, so then let's let's just go through chronologically here. So then <laughs> try to get back to some semblance of order. <laughs> okay, okay. So we're gonna have to we're gonna have to come back to all that stuff for sure because there's a lot of looks like stellar cartography groundwork which has been laid. But um, yeah, well, it's it's kind of chronological. The fact that coming out of that experience, I really felt burned. It's like fine, uh, I'll get back to life. I'll get on with college. I'll get my job going. And uh, this was the '80s, right? So it's like fine. Uh, I'll go back and have, and I'll still be a fan, and we'll just do stuff. And my big dream of being a published author and being involved in Star Trek nationally will go away. And then Next Generation came along, and I went, hmm, it's a whole new clean slate. And I remember writing a letter to Richard Arnold, and I was one of the 40 billion people that to him came across as, can I come to L.A. and work on Star Trek? Can I? Can I? Huh? Huh? Can I? Can I? And he wrote me a nice <laughs> you know, form letter and said, I'm sorry, but, you know, da 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 I'm like, okay. So... But when it started, the desktop publishing and the Macs were coming out, Mac Pluses and, and uh, laser printers. And I went, you know what? This time around, rather than be at somebody else's beck and call across the country or some publisher or some person, I'm going to do my own thing, damn it, which was where the world was going, right? So I did – I got a Mac. I, I researched. I talked to people. They said use a Mac and use FileMaker, and you can do a very simple database. And I started – doing the first season of Next Gen in my own concordance style, as an ep- just like kind of based on B. Joe's book, the episode guide part with the credits and then the encyclopedia part with the references of things, you know, coming up. And, um, you know, Worf grew up on Galt after his parents were killed at the Kittimer Massacre, and, you know, this is all goes back to Heart of Glory and blah, 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 whatever. And so-and-so was a sciences division, Lieutenant J.G., and his, and you know, you'd 
frame on a forehead VCR and go, and his room number is one, four, three, six. Oh, look, they put a first name on Lieutenant. Oh, that character in Okuna is Lieutenant Diana Giddings, according to her room (laughs) chart. Oh, that's cool. Oh, they're putting in-jokes on these things that you can get if you freeze frame on a forehead VCR without, you know. Oh, my God. And it's like, um, so you'd see those credits go by. Mike Okuda, Rick Sternbach. (laughs) <laughs> Hello, I'm trying to I'm trying to tell the blah blah blah, and they I'd start writing letters to Mike and Rick. Okay, well we don't make a big deal out of it, but yes, that's the you know, and here's a here's a copy of a printout of the uh, in jokes on the Magellan on you know uh, send in the clones or, or up the long ladder, and yes, here's the story, here's the shot with all the space missions that's on the display, you know that kind of stuff. So, I was doing. The first year, I put out my my TNG one was a concordance based on Bejo's, but it went way more detail. All the stuff that I wanted Bejo's to also have, I had in mine. And the only thing I was bad on was spellings because I couldn't afford to go buy a ten dollars script from Majel from Lincoln Enterprise, you know, from Lincoln Enterprise now Roddenberry.com. So I would everything that was like I would start or tag it if it was like a mate or, or Picard's pronunciation would be British and everything would be ah instead of ah and it would throw things. But I would give it a guess, and then I would have those tagged, and then I had this list of words to go look. So if there was a convention, I'd go look and see if there was a dealer that had scripts. And I would just pick up his script, and I could go right to the eight or ten words I needed to see the spellings of and get them and write them down real fast. Not on my pad or on my phone, but on the little piece of paper in my pocket with a pencil. You know, I wouldn't buy the script. I would just pick it up and look up my ten things I needed to know and stick it back in. But they wouldn't have all the scripts, and they would, I, you know, scattershot. So I did it. I published it, and I was trying to get Richard Arnold to come to a convention when we had real a litcon snobbery that didn't want MediaCon people at our cons, and we were going to hire him to come. And I said, "Would you come?" And oh, by the way, here's this book I did the first year. And Richard wrote me back and goes, "Oh my God! Oh my God! This is great. The writers have nothing. The writers have nothing. We have the writer's guide, but it's immediately outdated." And, oh my God! And, oh yeah, and by the way, I'll come to your convention. So he made copies of my thing and got it to all the writers. And so after that first year, they just knew that some guy this, – this thing appeared on their desk every year that was their background. So the first three, four, five years – that's why even four years in when Jerry Taylor was a new writer, she told me later on that she hated coming up with like alien names and character names and planets and races and everything. And it wasn't until years later somebody asked me about the Ninebeck, the shuttle in um, – in, um, Final mission, right? Wesley's last show, mm-hmm. and the rattle trap shuttle they land a crash in is the Ninebeck. And somebody said, "Did they name the Ninebeck after you?" And I was like, "Oh, wait, it's like <laughs> one letter off here and one letter off here, N to N, M to N, and B to C, C to B." Hmm. Who wrote that? Oh, Jerry. Oh, it was one of her like first shows. I'll ask her. And I remembered somewhere on the way, Jerry was like, "I hate coming up with alien names. I'll just take some name and like change a letter and change a letter and use that." And I went, Jerry, did, I didn't, hadn't met you, but is this like from Nemechek? And she's like, I guess it was. I had your concordance on my desk. I didn't know you from Adam, but I had that name, and it was kind of an interesting name, and I changed two letters, and yes. So that's where that came from. So welcome to the wacky world of early Star Trek, guys. So, okay, so... So that shuttlecraft is a typo. <laughs> yeah, right. No, it's a crappy alien one. You know, it's like everybody else gets... <laughs> You know, everybody else gets cool stuff, and I get the crappy thing that almost killed Picard. So you know, 
Well, that was a good episode, though. Very noteworthy and everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's reasonable. Yeah, yeah, Wesley gets to do something smart, but not like divine intervention and, smart. And it, and it bridged yeah. the space cool. 1999 universe there with Nick Tate, if anybody's still catching up with that. Okay. The guy who <laughs> was the alien pilot in that was the young, dashing pilot in space 1999. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> totally, man. What I mean, who doesn't know that that guy was the other guy and that thing that was being said? At the time, it was like a little stunt casting thing. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm aware of that, and that's not even like a lie at all. <laughs> so, okay, so you were doing these these concordances, and they were being given to the the, the writing staff, and then at what point did someone say like, hey? You know, we should try like making money off of this dude or something. Yeah, because I, you know, I wasn't, and I was doing all the right fanzine things and saying, you know, this is not meant to infringe on Paramount. But it, here's the thing: they were cranking out um, novels, like pro no- Pocket was doing pro novels, but there was no yeah. nonfiction. And first season goes by, second season goes by. In fact, I had a couple of one one when I was doing mine. There was somebody else. I think a woman doing a concordancy type thing, not near as in depth, but she was doing episodes and the credits and trying to do a concordance with references. And they were a lot more bare bone than mine were, because I was putting like visual things in. You know, it was like I didn't just say when the holodeck first appeared and the first time you saw it being used used was not the not the uh, pop goes the weasel scene in the pilot, but when um, <laughs> in that wonderful show Code of Honor when when Tasha goes into the arch pulls like a little phone looking thing off and hits a keypad and calls up the um um, not on budget so that's that's the made up one the martial arts routine that they use Uh, aikido maybe and they have the fighter and she fights with somebody and they've got the bear holodeck you know the yellow lines grid on the black and she has this Mm -hmm. very precise thing which later on they immediately like shortened into just give it a damn voice command you know kind of thing but I would, like, write all that down. There's a thing, and she hits taps three times, apparently, and did it something. But I would write all that kind of visual stuff down because who, you know, unless you were home recording, who had time to go back and hunt for that kind of stuff? So mine was more in-depth than that. So I knew a few people were doing that kind of thing, but um, mine was, you know, desktop publishing and laser printers were still new. It was just very impressive on its own, I guess. But, um, but yeah, uh, it... Uh, 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 Steve Walker at, at Starland started printing them a little bit more and offering through their catalog. But um, there was nothing commercially available. There was The Internet didn't exist, not like we think of it now. Memory Alpha was like way off down the Everything Memory Alpha does now is what I was doing. But call sheets, oh, they're a goldmine of information, guys. are like, oh, really? You want these? Yes, yes, please give that to me. Who are those extras? Who was this? Who, you know? What was the name of that set actually called in the script before I had a script? So yeah, they year by year they would do that, and after three or four or five years, finally, you know, uh, so best of both worlds happens. Uh, Star Trek Next Generation becomes a huge hyper hit, fourth season. So finally, fourth season, they talk to Mike and Rick about not Pillar and Berman, <laughs> but Okuda and Sternback. <laughs> talk to them about taking their tech notes manuals and making them a pro book, and so they did. And it took <laughs> it took like a year longer than they thought, so it really didn't get released until like the fifth season of Next Gen. And meanwhile, they had talked, and when it was released, they like were very timid. Pocket was like, "No one, who's going to buy this? We don't, you know, we don't want to lose any money, so let's just print ten thousand copies and see." And they were gone in <laughs> thirty minutes. 
you know, <laughs> I mean, really. And they would print yeah. another 10,000, and they were gone in 15 minutes. I mean, it was literally. And so then they would print a little more, and they would be gone. And then you print a little more, and they would be gone. It's like they had this four-year pent-up demand. Plus, other people like me and a little less rest- unrestrained were, like, printing stuff up, and, you know, third-party, private, not licensed stuff was being sold. But they were filling a demand, and you'd go to any convention and see people selling tons of books, just like they'd been doing stuff for years with the original series era and the movie era stuff. There was nothing. It, it's yeah. like now. There's no Star Trek being filmed. What do people do? It, they're, doing their, they're doing fan films, damn it. They're cosplaying. They've yeah. got, you know, there is a licensed game, but people are getting their Trek fix, whether they're going to professionally give it to them and sell it to them or not. And that was the same thing yeah. with background and nonfiction, all that stuff. So finally, Pocket got around to going, and, and the guys in the studio, licensing and the writers are going, this guy and this kid in Oklahoma, you really should like uh, have him do this. Look, he's got it written already. He's got it written already. And by the time it got to fifth season, they went, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're not going to reprint B. Joe's, and we're not going to give a new one to Larry separate because we have this idea that we might want everything merged. So... Mike and Denise got to do the encyclopedia in a merged way where everything was tied in. And we, they didn't establish the precedent of doing a new encyclopedia for each series, which would have really got clunky. Yeah. Who knew yeah. that there would be five shows eventually? But, um, but they said, but we want you to do a new episode guide book. And I'm like, because you've got it all written, right? And I'm like, because in my mind, I flash to Stephen Poe and the classic. And it's like, I, I haven't done any interviewing of people. It has to be about here's how we made it and had behind-the-scenes stuff. And I haven't done – I have the data points. I have trivia here, and I have the basic list of credits. I knew what everybody's names are, but I haven't talked to anybody. And like, it's okay. Can you do it in three months? This is March of 92. <laughs> and I'm like, uh – and they're finishing the fifth season. And I knew just by doing credits lists that there had been this huge merry-go-round of people. The people who were in the first season weren't around at all by the, the hit years, you know. And I knew that Michael Pillar came in the third season. That's when it took off. And, and I would occasionally read interviews in magazines, but I just kind of knew that just by watching the credits and knowing how good the show got, you know. So, I mean, it was like – it's like I remember reading – they said when an actor does a audition and they go, that's great, that's great, you've got it. Now, uh, you do know how to scuba dive, right? And you go, oh, yeah, sure I do, yeah. <laughs> you sign and then you run right out and you take scuba lessons, right? Or you know how to ride a horse, right? Oh, sure, yeah. And then you run right out and take some horse lessons. So it was like, you can do this in three months, right? Oh, sure, yeah. Then it was like, hello, world, go away. I would like kind of put three <laughs> hours a day at the paper because everybody knew I was writing, you know. And I was like, I went home and, and I just got married as an instant dad with two and a half stepkids, uh, young, oh but still. I say half because the oldest one lived with his dad and came with on the weekend. And, but the youngest were like two and four. <laughs> And on the weeks, I would go down and stay at my dad's and write at night and then come home on the weekends. Or was it the other way around? Anyway, I had to crank this. We went to the Denver con, my Starland convention cons that I loved. But the whole time I was in the back seat, not driving. It was a 12-hour drive from Oklahoma City up to Denver. But I was, like, working, making file cards. I was going back through all my star logs. I was looking for interview material to pull out. And since I came from a graduate and a journalism background, all my stuff was going to be footnoted. And um, and it was. I didn't know at the time that this is this is entertainment writing, so nobody cares. Which is why I think I have the only footnoted companion book out there. Because after that, Pocket was like, "Just don't worry about it." 
But at the beginning, if you look at the <laughs> next gen companion, it's footnote. Because I would pull from newspaper, and being at a newspaper, I would I had already been collecting clippings anyway, because I was a Trek fan and I had access to media before you could just go to whatever website and get it. You know, I had the AP stream right here. So that, or if and I you saw something in, in APA the, format, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, but I was I remember driving to Denver for the our annual pilgrimage up because it was a great con. But I was like in the back with index like five by seven index cards, making notes out of interviews from my clip file because that's all I had to go on. And then I had one week in LA. When nobody here cared, it was like we're trying to get you know, and and the clunky. There was no publicist on the lot. They had a third-party publicist who technically I was supposed to have my questions and interview requests that I submitted to Pocket, who then submitted it to Bender Golden Helper, who then sent it back over to licensing at Paramount, who then had to get oh over God. to production. So I show up going, "Hi, I'm an official red carpet, you know, writer. This is such a cool idea," and it was like. Huh, okay, fine. Um, or, you know, answer. So I was sitting in my motel room for two days out of the, my five days, six days I was here, getting really panicky. <laughs> and so, and they got me Bob Justman, who was retired. So I went over and had like a four hour interview with Bob that I had on tape, and I still do, that you can hear on Trekland Speaker, a chunk of it. And, you know, he printed out his, his uh, first season memos and, and development memos for me, which I still have, which is amazing. Oh, it was Bob's idea to have families on Boyd. Oh, it was Bob's idea to have a Klingon Marine in the, you know, all that kind of stuff. And uh, and get him his due since there's so much with the original series he didn't get his due on, really. And in, at least in the fan mind. And and I and um, finally got in a shouting match on the phone with the – because I knew Mike and Rick I had written letters back and forth with. And I knew Richard, and I had written letters back and forth with Eric Stilwell on the lot. I had four or five people I knew on the lot. It was just going, and I was paranoid about being, you know, lot protocols. Well, I don't have a picture of the one time I got to meet Gene Roddenberry because I actually didn't bring a camera on the lot. Stupid me. What? I know. So <laughs> Seriously? So, yeah. So it was um, – God, I'm, re- I'm thinking all this stuff now. I'm sorry, guys. I'm just thinking all this stuff that I haven't no, thought about okay. in ages. So finally, the third day, I was like cooling my heels in my motel room. And I called the publicist, and I and you know I'm talking to to Pocket, and they're like, "We sent all your stuff to Bender Golden Helper." And I remember being on the phone with her, and she's like screaming at me, "I've got look, I've got a week, I've got to write this in three months." And she's like, "She's like, don't you go?" And I said, "I know people," oh, I, and I said, "I know people on the lot already. I just need that." She's like, um, "Don't you go over there without a pass? Don't go over there and embarrass yourself. Don't. I'm responsible for you if you go over there and make like." She's thinking I'm like idiot stick goober fan you know <laughs> it's like didn't i get vetted already by pocket who are a licensee who are paying money this was such great training because of my introduction to how the world works <laughs> it's like the whole world is full of people in hollywood knows it's full of people who are just trying to get their damn job done and not get fired and just keep sometimes it's like keep your head low you know it's like whatever you not get just do what you have to do to get through but it's like do that do a great job. Just don't get yourself fired, you know, and don't do anything to make someone have to say no to you, you know, kind of thing. And I just remember she was like, well, I've, I can call people and get a pass on the. I just – I don't understand. And she's like, don't you go over there. If you go on the lot, you are not to make a fool of yourself. You know, you are not to get into – you are not to – and I'm like, who – why would I? How stupid would that be? It's like why would I sabotage my own – Anyway, she's like, so I finally I called and, and just called, you know, Richard had already, I had already come out as a tourist and had a tour, he got, did a set tour for me 
third season as a dumb little tourist tromping in and tromping off, you know, the lot. I wasn't going to go do something stupid and get myself a drink. Be mad. I know there are psychopaths that fans that do that, but I, you know, I'd come this... Anyway, so I finally just fell back on my own devices, called a couple people I knew that I actually had phone numbers for, had a pass, got on the lot, and meanwhile they'd got me the Bob Justman interview that I drove across town for, and, and uh, went over and met Mike and Rick for reals, and they printed out some stuff for me, and I talked to them a little bit. Uh, over in licensing, I went to licensing, saw the archive of pictures, which had just was in total disarray, and I was pulling stuff out that the people working on it didn't know they had. Oh, my God, these are black and white pictures of building the sets. Where'd you find that? <laughs> over here. Oh, okay. And, and, um, but no, none of the writers could talk. Nobody, could, nobody really could talk except for uh, later on on phone calls. So on one hand, it's, but I actually did get over to see the next-gen sets. <laughs> I mean, you know, I saw the hard building for the first time. I walked, I kind of like walked in. I didn't see anybody, didn't see, you know, Gene had died. That was, the other, this was early 92, Gene had died in October. So everybody was still recovering from the Gene is gone world, you know, and things were realigning and turf and everything mm-hmm. and how we, you know. So it was a really interesting, and, and uh, licensing had just set up in these two little offices before it got incredible. I saw licensing when it was in like three offices in the Balaban building instead of the whole fourth floor of the, marathon, the new Marathon building. So it was just a really, a lot of it I didn't have context for until I came back the next year and so much stuff had changed. I had two weeks and I really sat down and started talking to everybody and started doing, because the first one came out, it was a huge hit, the blue cover. Everybody loved it. They were reprinting and reprinting and reprinting like mad. And it basically, it and the tech manual, which was delayed a year, came out at the same time. And people were so hungry for nonfiction back then. Because, you know, pre-internet and, and, and yeah. you know. And the only thing you would do is you had magazine articles, maybe, kind of. It was so funny because, like, Starlog was doing the official magazine. And most of that was synopsis and all the crappy stills because that's all you had. You could frame grab. Are you kidding me? So, you know, what? What is that? <laughs> so it was like – and once each issue they would have like a background story. And once in a while they would have like Mike and Rick would have like donated, given them, you know, graphics and stuff. And those are the ones that everybody – you know, those are the issues that sold out because people were so hungry for, you know, fucking background stuff. There was nothing. So, yeah. So between the tech manual and then, and then my book – I mean, it, it sold humongously, and that was also right when they were announcing DS9 was going to come out, and my original thing was I was going to do the DS9 companion. And Anyway, so we had a strategy. So I came in 93, and 93 when I was out was when they announced the big picture was going to be we're going to end at seven years, we're going to do a movie, and we're going to launch a new show all in 94. So it was like, okay, guys, it makes sense for us to have the next edition do add on the last two seasons and have the movie in it. And they were like, yeah, that makes sense. So, you know, that was it. Hmm. And then <laughs> and then after that, the Trek World 94-ish went on the way it did. And, uh, you know, people stopped reading and the, the split series ratings started to go down. And uh, they, went, they went through a thing of, let's make all these books in color now, not black and white, because we know they'll sell. And then that turned into the 30th anniversary and coffee table books instead of reprints. And other people doing the companions because everybody wanted it on that gravy train. But Next Gen was the only series that was so popular that the companion – Terry did an incredible job. Of course, Terry got to start with day one on the show. <laughs> Damn it. You know. So <laughs> His book was bigger too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure and my was thing a, uh, was all about – if you look at the <laughs> way it's – my book was all about cramming 
in, right? So they were like little, I mean, I didn't pick the point. Oh, God, you guys, we could do, I could tell you so much. Because <laughs> one thing, I, I, I had to find a comfort zone. It's been so many years now, but listening to you guys on those earlier shows, and everybody praise, 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 and here's, I have a critique or two, but praise, praise, praise. It's like, I don't want to be Debbie Downer, but the things, like I could talk forever about the disappointments and the limitations you had to live in. And when we started the companion, I, my model was Stephen Poe's book, which had call sheets and had sketches, mm. and it had all that stuff in it. And when I first showed up, 92, and especially in 93 and then 94, it was all going to be about um, having photos and having original stuff and having graphics in there, right? Which is what they wound up doing with the coffee table book. But I took tons of my own photography with people, not on stage, but, but in their offices and things that made sense. The models at the motion oh. control rigs at MSG and things people had in their offices – I had oh all God, this stuff awesome. that I took thinking it was going to be in the book, and, every, and that's why everybody was having me do it after a while. And plus, after a while, even a week and then two weeks, people saw the book. People loved the book. People saw I wasn't stupid. I wasn't trashing anybody. It was, it was a licensed book, but it wasn't bland vanilla. You know? Mm. I mean, I would touch on things that wait, waiting back then. Now you can watch the DVD Blu-rays on the remasters, and they talk about you know, Michael's first year on Next Gen and what a what a train wreck it was and you know people hating him from the second season staff under Maury Hurley and all that kind of stuff that was dirty laundry that nobody wanted to talk about you know and, and Dorothy and David's experience in the first year it was you know because of Maury because of um, Leonard Majerless Gene's attorney all that kind of stuff was like whispered about and not talk but I would just say there was a con you know like we people that there were creative differences I mean I basically would talk about it. I would acknowledge it and if we couldn't get into the details we would at least be up front and be adult and say it was there without going into details. So that's yeah, what I yeah. tried to do, and, and that's what Pocket and everybody would let me do. So it was at least, it was not going to be a bland, you know, everything is all happy and happy veil here in the happy sector, you know, kind of a thing. And, and that yeah. was my thing. I tried to do that and, and footnote everybody and not rip anybody off when I quoted from interviews that I obviously hadn't had time to do. And that's what <laughs> drove the... And then it was totally different. So then you see – so if you go through the first – the companion, you look at the blue edition, the first five seasons in the pre, and we would have some spotlight shows you know, that lent themselves to that, like the Spock two-parter, which didn't have the Spock pictures because of the – I've talked about that because the Nimoy was mad at licensing, and he wouldn't let his image out for the first edition. <laughs> and then after a while in the blue – there are the Spock pictures in part two of Unification. There would be, you know, splash. But then you suddenly get to the sixth and seventh season when I was there talking to everybody, and I, I could talk to ten people per episode. You know, I talked to everybody, but I had the writers, I had the special effects, I had props, I had set design, I had, you know, everything in there. And all of a sudden, each each notes entry for each episode goes from three paragraphs to fifteen. <laughs> you know, it's like wow, there's more per episode the last two years. And it's not only because I was there to do it; I had plenty written back to to flesh out the earlier years but the the red edition turned into we're not going to reshoot those pages we're not going to relay out the mm -hmm. book oh <laughs> i it was like if i could approximate the point size and the font i could put some new updated bits in if they were either typos and they were not my fault a lot most of them or um um, uh, if I could take out something and approximate the same space so the overall page didn't change, if I could, like, kill a line or two at a time. And I was, like, counting yeah. points. And I had done this in the old days at a newspaper, so I knew how to count points in fonts and point sizes. So it, it was insane. I had st Someday, 
you could do a whole hour podcast on just and make people cringe at home with what I did for the red book, trying to get new information into the old part of the red edition. <laughs> so anyway, wow. and deal with the system I had to deal with. But anyway, so we did it, and then after the red book came out, you know, Generations was big, and that was a huge seller. Not as big as the blue, because there's nothing like your first. And a lot of people just had the blue and didn't want to, you know, spend money on another one. I get that. And then the poor black one is a product of the movies went down, went by, the internet came along, Pocket's attitude was nonfiction doesn't sell, it's all online now, blah, blah, blah. And when they did the next – but I still interviewed like crazy, and by then the communicator was going, and I was just around the lot. And, and rather than go, well, my book's out, I'm going to start ta- stop talking to everybody every year. I would still go – because I, I know after that first experience of you're here in March. I'm sorry. We have to get through the next month, and then we're on breaks. And the last thing we want to do is I learned to get everybody in that sweet spot of they're done. There's no other show, but they have to come in for another week or two and be around, but their burden is off. And get them then because there's no such thing as coming back from break and still not being stressed because when they all come back, they're all thinking of what's in their face to get going on. And they're already scrambling. The sweet spot to talk to everybody is like the last week or two when their last thing is done, and before they go off on their they, before they go off to Hawaii, or Australia, or or Idaho, or wherever they go on their hiatus to cleanse, you know, to dump, to do a memory dump for their sanity. Because even if you talk the next year at a good time, it's not like being in the moment and fresh. Mm-hmm. And the sweet yeah. spot time to talk, and, that, and I learned that. And this, there's so much that I learned real quick because they didn't roll out a red carpet for me. And and mm-hmm. that way I gained everybody's trust on because I had to like network to talk to people, but that was all great training because I I had to make my own introductions and make my own way. So when the books were done, editions were done, it was like oh I'd like to keep talking to you guys. It was like a conscious thing. It was like hey you want to do your end of the year talk for sure yeah okay. And every once in a while someone would go now what's this for? And I go oh, I'll use this in magazine articles and stuff. Oh okay. It wasn't like I was getting anything over on them. But so for until the last year of Enterprise, I would go in and talk to – unless it was a writer that knew they were fired already <laughs> and cleaned out early or somebody who – you know, I just missed somebody because of the scheduling. But after a while, I would try – and after a few years would go by, I'd go, look, you want to do this now, right? Because if I come back to you in five years because it's Star Trek and it will never die, I'll come back to you in five years and you'll be hazy and you'll wish we'd done this now and you'll wish some stuff had been written down, right? And they go – you're right. So so that was what so I did that through 2005 with everybody that I could get my hands on for as the shows would go by even if I would Now, I had hopes of doing the Voyager Companion later and I as it turned out I'm glad I didn't because poor Paul got stuck with here just do this quickie thing because it's Voyager and nobody's watching and it everything's on the internet and nobody reads books anymore. And that was the their attitude. We just doing this because the bookstores want something to sell with Voyager on it. So don't spend too much time, Paul. You know, and that's why the Voyager Companion looks the way it did. It's not Paul; he's not incapable of doing that kind of a book. So, yeah, it's unfortunate that it actually. And there was t- a there was a there was a um, embryonic plan. Somebody was tapped on staff was tapped to write the uh, Enterprise Companion, and then they yanked it because Enterprise wound up being the failed show. You know, on top of all the reasons mm. above, <laughs> even more on the internet, even more it's already out there, even more. It's in magazine articles, even more. You know, Memory Alpha was big by 2005 by then. So, so yeah. So the black, the final one only came about because it's like, well, let's wrap this up. Now that we know the three, you know, now we know Nemesis is the last killer movie. 
let's wrap it up and do the three movies. And then the last one's in there because the editor I had thought that synopsis were the most important thing. So my notes got cut in the limited space, which if you look, why is Generation so much bigger than uh, the other three movies? Well, because we had like 16 or 24 pages <laughs> and divide it by three. And then after I did that, uh, synopsis are more important. So we're going to trim your notes even more and make the synopsis longer. I, and hire somebody is, else to write the synopsis longer. That is just infuriating. Like, that's not, like, a sad story. That's, like, why would... That's, uh, so I don't want to do that to bring that you down on the companion. makes me angry. But that's the kind of thing. <laughs> so now it's like, okay. But, you know, it's okay, guys. It's okay because everybody does not read books anymore and get everything online, right? It's all... Uh, that's that's. A, no. Uh, no, you know, I mean, but I, I think there's... The, well, I, it doesn't matter, like, where you get it. But, I mean, like, somebody needs to actually do that work. Yeah. Like, if the Enterprise Companion wasn't an actual paper book, that wouldn't be a problem. But I want somebody to yeah. compile that information. Now, the fact that I've got years and years of those interviews put back, I thought, silly me, in the coming out of the 90s into the aughts, look at all this material. So, like, for years, the Fact Files Japan DVD collection... I wrote show notes like companion notes, but I've written notes on every episode of all the other series now, which I have, like, bang, I can go to. And I could probably add on even more um, at once I really, if I really start digging on things. And I had, like, 500 words to write on each show or whatever, and I could add to it. But that's sitting there as a kernel. But I've got, you know, it was three or four years ago when I went, I really need to get these guys off this plastic cassette tape and get them digitized. And then it was like, wait a minute. <laughs> Here's something I could do with this, and that's where the trackline on speaker thing came from. You know, it's like here I can do yeah. a theme and share this out there and, and get it out there. And some of the older, t- you know, the, the, the days when I'd be sitting talking to, especially the junior writers, like when Narain or Renee or you know Brian Fuller or well, when Mike Sussman, when uh, Rob, um, we always called him Richie because Janet obviously looked like Richie Cunningham was fresh face. Rob that now has. Um, um, elementary. Elementary or Sherlock? Which is the American one? Uh, elementary. Uh, elementary. That's Rob's uh, show. And he wrote with Ken on um, some a couple of Ken Billers. Anyway, when all those guys were like assistants and junior writers and we'd be in their tiny little offices with the really crappy, noisy wall air conditioners and it would be, you know, March and April and May in L.A. and it would be hot. And the first time or two, I would t- do an interview with my little Sony reel-to-reel sitting in front of them. And I'd get home, and the air conditioner would be like, you know, <laughs> in the background. And it, the next time, it was like, hey, can we do it without the air? You know, I'd learn, and then go the next one. Can we turn the air conditioner off for the hour? Oh, yeah. And then we'd sit there and talk for two hours and, you know, start to sweat a little bit. Oh, I'm sorry. It's like, that's okay. It's okay. You know, the little things you learn along the way, but it's, you know, or we'd be at the commissary or I'd, some of the directors I would meet out, you know, at, at Jerry's Deli or something somewhere, and you had the clink, clink, clink in the background. So, you know, aside from hmm. – and now we can re, you know, digitize and remaster and, and play with all that stuff, which is like, it's like Photoshop slides. Don't throw away your original series film clips just because they went to red. We can click them back with a touch of a button now. So, um, hmm. so anyway, there you go. I yeah, probably sent you down crazy. a path I mean, you had no idea the show was going to take. No, I mean, that's okay. And that's you, the thing that we're, like, looking for. I mean, like, on the, on the, on the companion thing, like, we – we lament the synopses because we know that the book that we would love even more is the one where you're not limited. Well, yeah. In fact, yeah. when the, the first year or two I sold it at cons, I would, as a bonus, I would have like the manuscript for the full chapter before it got cut, 
and say, here, pick, oh, wow. pick yeah. your, and, you know, and there had been books done about first contact. Well, the British, the Titan book that I worked on, which they had yeah. a clue about yeah. how to do. So <laughs> that was another thing. It's like, poor pocket. But Titan sold this in Europe, this incredible making of first contact book with sketches, with costume designs, with graphics in it, prop shots, and stills. And it sold a ton, and everybody's, and nobody in the States even knew it. And, and Pocket's like, oh, yes, First Contact was a huge hit movie. We should do that. So they hired Terry to write a book on insurrection, which was poor insurrection, you know, which didn't <laughs> generate a lot of buzz. And so his book kind of laid there, and then we're like, see, this is why we don't do books on the movies. It's like, well, no, you guys were just like, oh, you know. So, and then they did nothing on Nemesis, and it's just as well. But um, so in my own thing, it's like, you know, my f- I was doing it. I was like, well, there's a First Contact book, a chapter that no one in the States really has read a lot about First Contact. In my insurrection, I was like, well, I'm going to pare this down a little bit on my own just because there was a book done insurrection, even though no one read it. And then Nemesis, no one's going to write anything else about Nemesis ever. So I'll, you know, so I was even like carrying that kind of little weight in my head around while I was trying to decide what to do. Because, you know, it, it would be everything, well, you know, it would be everything from the writing process to the design process to the scenes that were cut that were written the paths that the story didn't take to what was filmed and got deleted now you've got deleted scenes on dvds but back in the day those were like revel so all it's a little funny because even even you know memory alpha thank you're very welcome memory alpha but um <laughs> it's like even even with it sitting there people go oh my god look at this deleted scene of blah 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 and i go it's very cool to see the picture of it but you know you could have read about it back in 1992 in my book it was there, you know, mm-hmm. kind of thing. It's kind of like, okay, guys, just chill. But, like, for years, I've said, oh, the Troy scene that got cut from Relics. The Troy scene was Sky that got cut from Relics. And so I was like, Rob and Roger was like, okay, did you guys find that one? Did you guys find that? Yes, we found it. Okay, cool. And so, you know, they were, you know, much less than them. Now, uh, the movies where they put the, so many of the deleted scenes are just, it's just a, it's just expected to have deleted scenes. Unless it's the Double Girls from Insurrection, which they can't put on for legal reasons because they can't find their names. But I have the cl- I have the tape of it. If you ever catch me at a con, I have the tape. And that's and that's the one with Quark, yeah, right? The so Quark, that's the whole Quark the cameo scene, which everyone wants the, to see. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess you'll just have to catch minutes. me at a con at my Doctor Trek show, my my crowdfunder meetup for Con of Wrath, and catch that whole yeah. forty second right. scene. Yeah, that would be worth it. Yeah, for sure. So okay, yeah, we'll we'll we we'll move I was going to say I've blown one, up your one, show one last no 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 don't worry about it but but one one last thing on without on, being too um, much of a downer that was the other thing I I love talking about this stuff well, but no, I don't want to come off as whining or griping or anything it's just it's just that's but, the way the world see, was you know well, that's the thing I mean you're you're looking at it from the you know hearts of darkness Francis Ford Coppola perspective <laughs> but everyone else yeah. just sees apocalypse now you know what I mean I mean yeah. that as a compliment you know it's it's like <laughs> You know what I'm saying? It's well, like you—you you were in it. You, you know? remember the heat, right? We just think yeah. it's an interesting story. You're the one with the gun to your <laughs> own head. You know, we're just the ones watching this awesome movie. You know what I mean? Or reading this awesome book. So I mean, I—it's like you're like, oh yeah, like, yeah. I think it's so good. But if they only knew, even and, yeah. I mean, maybe that's true. But like, it's still really if good. If nothing else, Every I guess step, the backhanded basically. thing of always leave them wanting more, even. <laughs> What it was the hook that came out for you and not yeah. yourself, but anyway. <laughs> Even collating notes in the back seat of the car is a fantastic story. Yeah, I mean, come on. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm so happy that that there were that there were moments like that, and it wasn't all like office 
you know, typewriter, get the job done kind of oh, thing. Oh, guys. That there was some desperation is awesome. Oh, when I came, I stayed from mid-March. Oh, wow. to, in fact, I'll always remember who I was on tax day in 94. It was like the next to last day I was in town. I was about to drive back. But I had done my laundry and taken it up, and I had stuck my, my new little – I had my laptop, my little first-generation PowerBook laptop under the seat – and I came down the next day to drive over to Brentwood to go to Majel's house. And I kept realizing, it was like, oh, I've got a window down because the air's blowing in on me. And I kept rolling my window up, and the air was still there. And I finally looked around at my, my passenger side rear window in my car that I had driven out, and it was broken. And I was like, oh, that's not an accident. <laughs> I got broke into. I knew where this was going really early on. And I looked down, and my first, my black and white, little first-generation PowerBook uh, 160 is gone. At my motel in the parking lot row where you're parking off the alley tucked under the upper floor of the motel. Nice motel. It was over, it was like, I was six blocks from CBS Fairfax. I mean, it was not a bad neighborhood, quote-unquote. And like, oh. Okay, so I um, <laughs> scraped the money and got on the phone, and I mean, this is this is like you know 1994 guys. It's not like <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, I called and got another one in a couple of days, and had my tape recorder and went on with my. And I wasn't typing. The, God bless me if I'd done it. I mean, I wasn't like typing up transcripts <laughs> immediately. Ha 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 ha. So it wasn't like I was <laughs> d- totally dependent on it, but. I, I just remember – so I went and the, when I interviewed Majel, I had the sick pit in my thing of – I had my – it's like, hello, welcome to L.A. again, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> and but Janet was like, I can't believe you left it. You're, I was carrying laundry up the stairs. I had it tucked under the seat. How, who's going to see it? Under, you know, Jesus. So someone out there who bought a hot laptop in the mid-'90s probably has some notes on Star Trek production. Yeah, on, you know, on <laughs> System 2 or something, you know, whatever back yeah. in the day. Oh my God! So yeah, stuff like stuff like those kind of things happen, and I don't know. I got off on that for a specific story, going to Majel's, and and you know, I I um, I just have really, you know, uh, it's just it's it's just amazing how the passing, the passing world of Star Trek, and how all this is wound up in the passing world of Star Trek and technology, and you know, my own being green and getting to know how the world worked. The whole thing with the Spock images was just, it was, that was the first lesson. And you know what? It's Hollywood, kid. No one cares about the words. <laughs> it's the pictures that matter. <laughs> you could write 40 billion words and sweat and stew over it. But at the end, it's, it's all about these two pictures of, of Nimoy and Spock not being in there at the end. And, and because of that, they held up for three months. I got, the point of that was I got three more months to write while they tried to wrangle the picture issue. Well, that's good. Yeah, Every which was a lifesaver because I was brilliant. supposed to write about generations before the final. E- I mean, I was literally on the phone with the editor who I'd set this up with, telling me what were the scenes. I mean, I had the script. I, you know, I hadn't seen it, seen it, but I'd seen some pieces and I'd seen stills, but I didn't know what. So if I'm going to write about scenes being cut or not cut, I didn't want to write about oh the so and so scene, but and to talk about it like it's in the movie, but it was deleted. You know, the basic fact about mm-hmm. it. You know, if it was whatever about it. The prompt or the acting or the the homage name or something, whatever. But the fact whether it was in the movie or it was a deleted scene. If I say that it's in the movie and it was deleted, everybody's going, what the fuck does he know? What moron is this? No one cares. I, you know, I'm just thinking like next spring. I'm not even thinking that it's going to be on somebody's shelf five, ten years from now. 
I wasn't even like mm-hmm. thinking that. Just like I was not even thinking about being in that first fan film. That fifty million people were going to see it. I was just like, oh, this is. I I just want to do a stupid job here. So. So yeah, so I'm like on the same thing, and then the same thing came around with Nemesis. It was the same deal. It's like deadline, deadline, deadline. I need to know what's in in and not in. And I'm like on the phone with the uh, editor, telling me, you know, the, or the assistant to the editor, telling me, okay, so scene 63 is out, and 42A, and scene 17 is back in. Oh, okay. So I know how to <laughs> how to frame them as a deleted scene or not, so people wouldn't think I'm an idiot. Because five years from now, who cares when you wrote it? You know. Yeah. You're the guy yeah. writing the book about it. You should know, damn it, regardless of what your deadline is. And you never would say, you know, it's not like news. You go, at deadline, it was unsure whether scene 47 was in the movie <laughs> or not. But <laughs> you can't write that. Anyway, so, I, but, you know, the main thing, I knew how I was as a fan, and I knew what I would want to read and not read. And what was The one thing I didn't want to have, like, and, and I know it wasn't Alan Asherman's thing, but I remember the original series com- compendium. How every new movie, the six original series movies would come out, and he would write four new pages, and they would slap it on the back and charge you five more dollars. And you would go, I'm going to skip this one. Okay, well, I'll let two or three go by. Then I'll buy, okay, I'll buy this one. Oh, okay, Voyage Home was a cool movie. I've, I've waited through two movies. I'll buy this one. You know, and I just, I mean, silly me. I didn't know at the time that was not my decision to make, but I was... Yeah. To the extent I could, I would weigh in that way. But, you know, as it turned, you know, when, when they called me and said, okay... Nemesis is out. It's the last one. We're gonna we're gonna finally do this. I was so glad that I went in on First Contact and Insurrection and wrote like I was gonna write a chapter eventually. And of course, I was doing Communicator and and stuff for Titan and the you know. And after '96, I was doing fact yeah, Insurrection and Nemesis were during Fact Files days. So it was like I still went and took advantage of every opportunity to interview everybody and get in on the the regular press junkets and then the stuff I knew because everybody worked on the shows was you know Mike Westmore and Dan Curry and the writers and all that were, you know, Jonathan, everybody's Jerry Fleck. They're all working on the shows, and I knew them from the shows, which was great. And thank God when they called me and said, okay, do the last three movies in a new update. It was like, okay, because I had all the crap waiting there, you know. It's not <laughs> like I had to run out. I did run out and get Michael Pillar, which was I'm very glad I did because I realized I didn't have anything of the time of Insurrection, and that was the last time we did a set down. His cancer just came in like within – six, nine months of that, and got him. And I was very glad. But by then, we were we were ironic enough to go, hmm, they wouldn't let you do Romulans in Insurrection, and look who the uh, opening... Because they're boring. And now look what the opening thing of Nemesis is. And he's like, uh-huh, you noticed that, huh? <laughs> Still boring. <laughs> yeah, it's all in the handler. So, okay. okay. <laughs> all the handler, guys. Okay, we're going to just uh, put a stop to this right here for the time being. Um, our original plan was to talk to Larry for about 45 minutes about uh, his career, and that conversation turned into two and a half hours. So we're going to split this up into two parts. We just finished talking about the next-gen companion, and then next week we will hear what Larry has to say about stellar cartography. So we figured this is a good place to stop. But this isn't all that we're talking about this week on Trek.fm. So here's a taste of what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. Arena Commentary. They're like, everything is fine. There's nothing. Just come down. We have fried chicken. (laughs) It's good. Earl Grey. Picard's Romances. 
You say it's not great, Philip, but what I think you mean is it's probably one of the most forgettable episodes of the <laughs> entire series. The Ready Room. They're on you in war. That was, what, the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth episode of the original series, Lawrence Schneider. He invents the Romulans. That was the whole the whole genesis of it. And if they'd known that the Romulans might have been a recurring alien, they might not have given them those, you know, quote-unquote, expensive helmets. The Orb. Boogie. We find out, and Quark finds out, as we're talking about how he reacts and sort of comes to terms with what his mother's doing. She's the woman behind the curtain. She's the person who is calling the shots at the highest level of Ferengi society. To the journey! Ultimate Season 5 Marathon. You could argue brother and sister, but maybe more like your favorite uncle, who you once had a sex dream about. I don't know. <laughs> so that explains persistence of vision. <laughs> yeah. Warp 5. Archer's Lost Loves. Not Dodge so much, it's just... He's unsure of himself in that in that regard. He can be a starship captain, but a guy in love? Mm, I don't know about that. Commentary, Trek stars. The TNG Companion. He secretly doesn't know every time he replies to me on Twitter, I let out, let out a little fan squeal on the other end. I play it cool, though. I play it cool, guys. Um, no, I'm, I'm the same exact way, but I don't play it cool. By little fan squeal, you mean <laughs> that sound Chekhov made in the <laughs> Continuing Mission. The Continuing Mission Audio Drama. Our writer, David Raines, is a huge Lovecraft fan. And all of these Lovecraftian creatures are from outer space. And, you know, the Star Trek characters, they're always running into, you know, these godlike beings. But, you know, they're benevolent. Well, they're not benevolent, but, you know, they speak English and, you know, they look like William Campbell. And- Literary Treks. Serpents among the ruins. We'll always help Paris. <laughs> wow, you just destroyed one of my favorite lines from my favorite movie ever. Huh. We'll always have Iron Mike <laughs> Paris. Oh, All right. <laughs> and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows to get in on the daily Trek talk. We have new shows for you every day, and you'll find them on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zune. I think they're on Spreaker and uh, some other stuff. Uh, you can go to the website and download or stream files directly from there, or uh, go to our artist page on iTunes at itunes.com slash trekfm. You can find all the podcasts right there. Before we go, we'd like to ask you to please support our sponsor, who makes it possible for us to bring commentary Trek stars and our other shows to you each week. Our sponsor for this week's show is Audible.com. And you can get, you know, audiobooks for free on Audible.com if you sign up using our offer code. Um, Books like... Star Trek The Next Generation, All Good Things. You know, last week was the 20th anniversary of All Good Things. I still vividly remember sitting there watching it here in Chicago on WPWR Power 50. Uh, it was it was amazing. I had, like, my, uh, my, my TV hooked up to our sound system, so it was stereo sound, but the two speakers weren't by the TV, so that was a little weird. So I was, like, sitting, facing. It doesn't matter. The point is, you can get that book for free on audible.com uh if you use our 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 
offer code. Um, for those people who don't know what All Good Things is about, uh, this explosive finale to Star Trek The Next Generation centers on the Q Continuum's decision to destroy humanity's existence in space and time, and Captain Jean-Luc Picard's chance to sacrifice everything and save mankind, featuring a dramatic reading by Jonathan Frakes and enhanced with sound effects and original score. It was written by Michael Jan Friedman. We've talked about how Friedman had written a bunch of comic books back in the day that were really good. You might want to check out Dark Star. It was pretty cool. Pretty cool. The ones with Donna Troy, anyway. And you can get this book for free since you listen to Trek FM. Audible is a great way for you to read all of the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have the time for. Audible is the premier source of, for audiobooks with more than 150,000 titles to choose from and new titles coming every week. From classics to current bestsellers, Audible has something for everyone. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial to see just how great Audible is. So give it a try today. Catch up on all those classic books you've yet to read or that latest novel from your favorite author as well. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we thank you and Audible for supporting Commentary, Trek Stars, and trek.fm. As always, you can find us right here on Trek.fm, where we do commentary Trek stars, or you can also find me on Trek.fm, where I do uh, Standard Orbit, along with Drew, where we talk about the original series. You can also find both Max and myself on our own website, CommentaryTrackStars.com, where we talk about pretty much whatever we want to talk about. This week, we're talking about... Uh, the new Star Wars spinoff and what we think about the choices of Gary Whitta and Gareth Edwards and, and how we feel about Edgar Wright leaving Ant-Man after eight years and what that means for the movie and what that means for Edgar Wright. And we do that show with our friend Brandon, who kind of uh, adds, adds a, a, good, a good third voice to the dynamic. It changes things. It's a lot more, uh, um, uh, well, how would you say, casual casual. So uh, check that out over there on CommentaryTrackStars.com. Also, you know, hit us up on Twitter, at ComTrackStars. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you think about Larry and, and his, his amazing stories about uh, the making of the Star Trek Next Generation companion. Or send us an email at ComTrackStars at gmail.com. All right. Well, that's it for part one of part four of our Larry Nemechek series. And we will be back next week with part two of part four, or maybe part 4.2 if you prefer, um, where we are going to talk to Larry about stellar cartography. 